it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Friday, January 27th, 2023. Happy Friday, everyone, and welcome to the Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson, your host, political editor at townhall.com. Fox News contributor and host of this fine program. Every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time, then around the clock for free on demand on our podcast. All the ways to listen live at GuyBensonShow.com. There's the live stream, there's Fox News app, there's all sorts of options for you. Fox Nation is another good one. Of course, our fantastic affiliates dotting our fruited plane. Our partners at odyssey.com, A-U-D-A-C-Y.com. Many ways to listen live. And then, as I mentioned, also the podcast, available at our website or foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Broadcasting today from Olympia, Washington, the capital city of this state out in the Pacific Northwest. In fact, I will revisit why I'm out here in just a second and something that I noticed last night. But first, here's our lineup. For the program today, Governor Brian Kemp, Republican, Georgia, just reelected a couple months ago. Looking forward to having this conversation with Governor Kemp. That's coming up later on this hour. Jimmy Fela, Fox News Radio, Fox Across America. He'll be here. Always a fun time with Jimmy. That's in the next hour. Also in our middle hour, we'll get into some political analysis, sort of 2024 early data points, certain maybe tea leaves to read with Josh Krasauer of Axios and a Fox News contributor. And then in our final hour, Molly Hemingway will be our guest just after 5 p.m. Eastern time. Looking forward to that conversation with Molly. Now, I have a few thoughts on politics here to get to in a second, but I do want to say, as I mentioned a moment ago, flew out to Seattle from D.C. last night, did the show, got to the airport. That's a long flight. Like, I've done the cross-country flight many times, Los Angeles, San Francisco, it's just longer up to Seattle, both in terms of the actual you know, minutes of flight time, but also just it feels longer. And we finally landed in Seattle. And what's interesting is typically when I leave D.C., when I leave one Washington, that's home, and go somewhere else in the country, almost always I'm going somewhere less insane than Washington, D.C., from a political perspective. I cannot confidently say that that is the case this time. This place is nuts. Washington State and its hub, Seattle, nuts. The policies, the decisions, I mean, just the folks, I'm doing a speaking engagement here at a conference, and some of the folks that I've already been talking to, just giving me a little snapshot of the legislative agenda in recent years and currently, and it's just like, Cartoon stuff, it's, it's almost like they and the D.C. City Council are just having a game of chicken of who can be nuttier. And it's hard to say who's winning at the moment. But, and this is, I think, just like a little example of what the culture can be like out here. 
as we were boarding the flight yesterday in D.C. on our way to Seattle, I don't do this really as much as I used to, where I would really pay attention to how many people were wearing masks versus not. Like in the thick of the COVID battles over masking when the federal mandate was still in place or had just been lifted because of that judicial decision, what was that, like a year ago? It all kind of blurs together. I, in the past, would be much more attuned to that sort of thing. I do less of it now. But when I'm in a setting where I'm noticing at least some people wearing masks in a way that is somewhat unusual, uh, unusual for my daily life, I just take some notice of it. And on the flight yesterday, boarding in D.C., there were some people wearing masks, sure. I swear, when we landed in Seattle and people were getting ready to deplane, there was a noticeable increase among people wearing masks, including people who were not wearing them at the airport in Washington or during the flight. But I guess they were about to show their faces, or at least half of their faces, in public in Seattle, and I guess the signaling game is still pretty strong out here. I just I think that's both sort of like weird and a little bit anti-science and sad, but also kind of funny. Like, imagine coming to D.C. for your little getaway from these types of shows, these little political shows and statements you have to make with things that you put on your face. And I guess, in their minds, the science dictates that Dulles Airport in Washington is COVID safe. The flight from one Washington to the other across the country, that's COVID safe. But the second you step off the airplane in Seattle, well, that's where you have to start worrying about COVID. Or, alternatively, it has nothing to do with COVID at all and everything to do with the expectations and judgments and neuroses of the people who live in one of these places. Right? So I had to chuckle. Like, I made eye contact with at least one person being like, Sir, I know you did not have that thing on when you boarded or during the flight, but you got it on now? Oh, good. Slow clap. Just heroic stuff. Thank you. Thank you for your science. I applaud and I bow to your science, capital S. Anyway, that's the science. How about some fake math? Fake science to fake math. This has been annoying me in recent days. I'm not going to belabor the point too much, but obviously it annoys me enough and ticks me off enough that I'm opening with it here on this Friday edition of The Guy Benson Show, and like budgets and deficits and debt and blame over spending and that sort of thing is not exactly the hot stuff, the good stuff for talk radio. It's not the sexiest topic. And yet, here we are. We're going to talk about it because we're heading toward this debt ceiling fight. The debt is out of control. What is it? $31-plus trillion. It was... Very bad and unsustainable even a decade ago, and it is so much worse now. And there's people saying, well, that's because of Trump, and there's some truth to that, although a lot of that was bipartisan COVID spending, emergency spending. If anything, Democrats wanted more spending. So it's sort of hard to say, oh, well, look at Trump and his fiscal recklessness if you were on the team saying do even more, much more, trillions more. But that's sort of the cynical game that gets played. And as the debt ceiling debate unfolds, and we probably have till May or June, till the actual you know, limit gets hit with all the extraordinary measures happening right now at Treasury, 
Look, I understand you've got to raise the debt limit. There are lots of negative ramifications if you don't. I think Republicans need to be smart and strategic and careful and realistic about what they can actually achieve during this standoff. And I think that requires them to get on the same page early on something that is simple, that is popular and easily understandable, that is not too big of an ask. And just stick to that. I'm not confident that they're going to get there anytime soon, but that's sort of my read on it. Rich Lowry actually has a very good piece at Politico calling out Republicans rightfully about how they go on hiatus when it comes to like fiscal conservatism and, you know, debt hawkishness when Republicans are in control of the presidency. And then the Democrats get control again. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, no, look at the debt. I think that's a fair hit on a lot of Republicans, not all of them, but a lot of them. Rich writes, after a hiatus during the Trump years, Republicans are back in the mood for fiscal probity. It's very strange not to seriously pursue a deeply held goal when you have unified control in Washington, then insist on trying to achieve much of it in one fell swoop when you barely have control of one chamber of Congress. But here we are. This is the Republican pattern. That's what Rich writes in the opening of his column at Politico. I think that's fair. It also doesn't change the math that our debt and deficits are a huge problem and it is unsustainable. And the Republicans pretend to care about it for the most part, sometimes. And Democrats don't even pretend to care about it, unless it's in the context of criticizing Republicans for something that they don't like. I use the phrase a lot. It's not something that I originated. I don't remember who I need to credit it to, but it's not me. Someone said, Republicans are the fiscally irresponsible party. Democrats are the fiscally insane party. And I think that's right. (laughs) Hooray. Doesn't that feel good? But as we get close to the debt ceiling fight, we are seeing a similar lie being pushed by a number of Democrats. So, for example, Elizabeth Warren, she tweeted this week, if Republicans hadn't spent nearly $2 trillion on the Trump tax cuts, and if they hadn't made it much easier for rich people to cheat on their taxes, the U.S. wouldn't need a debt ceiling increase this year or next year. The rich people cheating on their taxes thing is weird. Maybe she's trying to defend her party's doubling of the IRS, doubling of the IRS in the so-called Inflation Reduction Act. That's what they've done. And as we've established based on actual evidence and actual patterns at the IRS and the way that they operate with their audits, that is going to disproportionately impact middle class and working class Americans. That's who gets hit by that type of scrutiny, and the IRS is going to be a lot bigger and a lot more powerful to do it thanks to people like Elizabeth Warren. So that, I think, is a total red herring. But I love she says, this is, this is because the Republicans spent nearly $2 trillion on the Trump tax cuts. Well, no. Cutting taxes is not government spending. Allowing Americans to keep more of the money that they earn is not government spending. That requires the completely backwards mindset that all of the money that exists in this country ultimately belongs to the government And they will magnanimously allow us to keep some of it. Money doesn't belong to them. It belongs to us. We should give them as little of it as possible to do the core things that they need to do and nothing more. Hopefully competently. Of course, they don't do that. And they always demand to do even more and more and more. But it is not spending to let people keep more of their money. And then also for a $2 trillion tax cut, 
that tax cut and the tax reform, that was across the board. That benefited every income group in this country. The economy soared after Republicans cut taxes and Trump signed it. And some of the deregulation, the economy was in great shape until COVID hit. The economy was cooking with gas because of these successful policies. And I know they frame it as Republicans spending money, and it's the tax cuts that caused all these deficits and all this debt. And, you know, if we hadn't done that, there would be no need to increase the debt ceiling. It's total nonsense. The math is completely wrong. Case and point, the most important point, is that revenue that came into the federal government after taxes went down, the revenue went up. Revenue increased to the federal coffers after the tax cuts. In fact, it has reached multiple times record highs. The government has never taken in more revenue in taxation ever in the history of our country after the tax cuts. And yet the debt gets worse and worse and worse. And the reason for that is not the revenues, which are at all-time highs and increased. The reason is spending, which they never want to talk about. Chris Murphy, the Democrat from Connecticut in the Senate, one of them, the other one lied about serving in Vietnam. Chris Murphy tweeted this. You can't make this up. Republicans added $4 trillion to the debt with their tax cut for corporations and billionaires. Now they're refusing to allow Treasury to pay back the loans unless Congress agrees to cut Medicare and Social Security. Let's just put Medicare and Social Security in that conversation off for another day. They are unsustainable. They are going to go insolvent unless we change something for younger people. They can deny that and use it as a successful scare tactic. Politically, fine. doesn't change the math. But notice the number increased to two tri- from uh, $2 trillion to $4 trillion. At least Elizabeth Warren got the number right of $2 trillion. Murphy just doubles it. He said, you can't make this up, and then he makes stuff up. It was not a $4 trillion tax, in, uh, tax cut. And that was not an addition of $4 trillion to the national debt. Again, revenues went up when taxes went down because the economy grew. That's the whole point. And he frames the Republican tax cuts not only incorrectly with the wrong dollar amount. He was off by 100%, missed it by just a smidge, Chris. He describes it as a tax cut for corporations and billionaires. Well, it was a tax cut for them. Also for everyone else, every single income group in the country benefited from the tax relief from Republicans. It was not just for the rich. In fact, disproportionately, it was working class people that benefited. The overwhelming majority of all taxpayers across all groups got a tax cut, and they just don't want you to know that. Last but not least, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez Asked about the debt ceiling, asked specifically by our colleague Hillary Vaughn about Democratic spending, where they spent trillions just in the first two years of the Biden administration, setting aside all the bipartisan COVID stuff. Do you think you guys maybe spent a little too much? All the COVID relief, all the inflation that they caused. Here's AOC's response, totally ignorant, cut 24. Democrats have been in charge for the past two years. Do you think Democrats have spent too much money? Um, I think the largest contributor to the debt ceiling or to our deficit has been the Trump tax cuts. But I got to go. The largest contributing factor to our deficits has been the Trump tax cuts. I mean, it's just not even close to true. It's embarrassingly ignorant.
I guess they're counting on ignorance from the rest of the country being like, oh, yeah, Republicans gave us more of our money back. Let us keep more of our own money. That must be why there's a debt problem, not the many trillions in new spending that has now gone out the door with the Democrats wishing we had spent trillions more. Just want to correct the record on what happened in 2017, the positive results to our economy, the record revenues, and just this blizzard of insulting nonsense that they're shoveling at us as they try to point other fingers on the debt problem, which they just can't be honest about. Revenue isn't the issue. Spending is. Put it on repeat. It's almost always the truth. The Guy Benson Show on this Friday underway. We'll be right back with much more after this. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Fox News Radio On Demand on the Fox News app. Download the app and just click listen. When you swipe left, you can listen to your favorite Fox News talk shows live. Swipe right for the latest Fox News Radio newscasts on demand. Fox News Radio on the Fox News app. Download it today. I'm Guy Benson. We are back. Thank you very much for tuning in. Some breaking news here. Fox News alert. On a couple fronts, story we've been covering, a fourth suspect has been arrested in the subway beating of our Fox News colleague, meteorologist Adam Klotz, last weekend. This suspect is 18 years old and has now been charged with third-degree assault. The minors, 15, 17-year-olds, they were arrested and then released. We will continue to follow that story, but at least a little bit more accountability coming there. And then this just breaking from California, the RNC, the members of the RNC, have now voted on the chairperson for the Republican National Committee for the next term. There's a bit of a battle. The existing chair, the sitting chair, the incumbent, Ronna McDaniel, was under some pressure, under a lot of fire after three consecutive elections that were either lost or where we saw an underperformance from Republicans. But she survived that scrutiny, and she has won that election. She will remain as RNC chair for another term. She received 111 votes. Her main challenger, Harmeet Dillon, got 51 votes, so less than half. And then Mike Lindell of Pillow and other things got four votes. So a relatively easy win for Ronna McDaniel, for better or for worse, that just breaking moments ago on The Guy Benson Show. Brian Kemp, Georgia Governor, up next. Stay with us. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. We're back. It's the Guy Benson Show on this Friday. Hope you're having a good one. Thanks for listening. With us now is Brian Kemp, the 83rd governor of the great state of Georgia. And he joins us here again. And, Governor, welcome back to the show. Hey, thanks. Delighted to have you. I did see, and we mentioned it actually earlier in the week on this program, a new poll out in your state, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, 
has your approval rating bouncing to an all-time high, north of 60%. You're plus 30 above water following your big re-election victory uh, late last year. What do you think is happening there where you are now at the highest watermark so far of your term in office as governor? Well, I've been telling people that's just an Atlanta paper setting me up and then come after me. <laughs> but I'm not, too, I'm not too worried about uh, about polling. Listen, I've been doing what I told people I would do. I did that, as we talked about many times during the campaign, after I got elected in 2018. And, you know, I ran on issues this year going into the 2022 election and got reelected handily, thank goodness. And, you know, I've been talking about my state of the state, my inaugural address of doing the things that I campaigned on. And I think that resonates with Georgians, and I think they're realizing a lot of things that were said during the campaign, just like, as you and I have discussed many times, Guy, our our voting bill, you know, Georgians realized that Stacey Abrams and other people were, and I was telling them the truth, and they realized that, you know, we got an issue with street gangs and violence in our communities, and I've been doing something about it, and I think that's just resonating with them. Yeah, I I think you're right and wise to say that polls can come and go in terms of approval ratings. But you just referenced a different poll, this one from the University of Georgia, that might be more meaningful. We also talked about this earlier in the week because we've been covering a lot of the lies told about the voting reform bill that you signed into law. There was so much noise out there from Stacey Abrams to Democrats in Georgia, to the news media, to the president of the United States, who is maybe worst of all, Jim Crow 2.0, worse than Jim Crow, voter suppression, racism. Well, the University of Georgia asked Georgia voters about their experiences going to the polls this past November. 98.9% of Georgia voters said they did not have a problem voting. There was no difference between black people and white people on that question. 72% rated their experience in voting in the last election as excellent. Again, no racial gap whatsoever. And 0% of black voters, the people supposedly being suppressed, 0% of them rated their experience voting in 2022 as poor. That's the University of Georgia poll. What an absolute repudiation to a lot of smears that were told over and over again, Governor. Well, as you know, guy, we were really on the front lines. Really one of the first instances where, you know, we had to push back against the woke cancel culture and big corporate CEOs, Major League Baseball, and everybody else that fell for the taglines and the pressures from people like Stacey Abrams and President Biden and a lot of big wigs that most of them didn't even live in Georgia. They were criticizing our voting bill, and they didn't even know what was in it. But, you know, we never wavered. We stood by our guns and told the truth, and we did that for a very long time, and we ran the race and won. And you know, during that race, everybody had an easy time voting, no matter who they were voting for. And the numbers speak it. I mean, we were seeing record turnout and early voting, not only in the primary, but also in the general election. And then the university poll just really codifies that, if you will, uh, and solidifies what Jordan's already know. It's easy to vote and hard to cheat. And it's a shame that you had people like Joe Biden saying it was Jim Crow 2.0 and you know, all these other crazy things. But we proved to be right, and I think that's one reason, you know, not only mine, but the Republican leaders in our state, our approval ratings are good right now because we've been honest with people and we're doing what we said we'd do. 
there was an obviously politicized investigation launched by the Justice Department, the Biden Justice Department, into this exact issue, the supposed voter suppression, which doesn't exist. I mean, it's a complete fabrication. It has been debunked in every conceivable way. I think it is outrageous that it was ever launched in the first place. Every day that it continues is a waste of time, resources, and taxpayer money. Is there any indication that that might go away? They might finally drop this and just take the L? That's part one. Part two, have you gotten apologies from anyone who participated in the lying and the smears now that they have been obviously proven totally wrong? Yeah, well, I don't think that crowd's going to be apologizing, and that's fine with me. It doesn't matter as long as our citizens know. But what is shameful, guys, just like you just said, is the taxpayers of our state are continuing to have to pay for these ridiculous lawsuits. You know, we've paid over $6 million in the fair fight lawsuit that we won. It's way back from 2018 that Stacey Abrams and her group fought that a federal judge threw out on every single count. And now you got the Biden Justice Department suing us over a voting bill where we just have almost 100 percent voting satisfaction uh, in the 2022 election. So they should withdraw the lawsuit. They should drop it. They should save our taxpayers and federal taxpayers money. And, I, you know, hopefully they'll do that. I'm sure they're probably waiting for a good time to do it when maybe no one will notice and they can try to save face. But if they don't, we're going to fight it. We'll fight it hard just like we've been doing because the truth's on our side. Yeah, maybe they can just drop it quietly on a Friday night, one of those Friday news dumps. Uh, You know, the sooner the better. Governor, I do want to ask you about this. I saw that you were in Davos, Switzerland at that World Economic Forum, Uh, typically kind of an elitist event, a lot of people from around the world in Europe. There were a lot of Democrats who participated, not as many Republicans, at least from what I saw. But you were there, and uh, you maybe uh, looked and sounded a little different than some of the other people who were participating. You certainly think differently than many of them. What message do you deliver to that type of crowd? I mean, I saw some of your remarks. It seemed like you were making the case for your conservative policies. I mean, how was that received in Davos? Well, I'll tell you, when you wear cowboy boots and talk like (laughs) I do, I certainly stood out in Davos with that Uh crowd. But listen, Guy, it was great. It was a great opportunity for me to sell our state to the world, especially from a business perspective and how – our conservative agenda and uh, free market policies is working in our state. We were doing it long before the, you know, so-called uh, Inflation Reduction Act passed. And I talked about that on the panel. I talked about securing the border and uh, a lot of other things that we're doing in Georgia. My problem was when I was on that stage with that crowd, there was five federal politicians, one other governor that's, uh, you know, probably 180 degrees different from me. So. Out of a 45-minute panel, I think I got to speak for a minute and 36 seconds. But I said a lot. <laughs> uh, but we had a lot of other great meetings and places where I was able to just talk to people about what we're doing in Georgia, about the conservative playbook that we have is working. And I was pleasantly surprised. There's a lot of people there that we're doing business with in Georgia from all over the world, uh, South Koreans, Germans, uh, you know, a lot of other uh, businesses, Japanese that we're doing business with, other U.S. companies that are either headquartered in Georgia or have big presences there. And so I got to do, you know, three or four months worth of meetings in three or four days, which was great. Uh, but also I was surprised at how many other like-minded people were there. They're just not near as vocal as, as I was. Uh, but that voice needs to be heard. You know, they need to have alternative voices there. And I, I caught a lot of grief from some of my own friends when I went out there and, 
people on our side of the aisle. But we can't just talk to ourselves about conservative ideas and what makes our states work. Uh, we gotta we got to convince other people of that, and that's what I was doing in Davos. Now you're also touting your COVID policies, which were very controversial here at the time, and I'm sure many people in that audience are just like, I can't believe they did such irresponsible things. But I mean, the results are what they are, and you went to bat for that as well. Now, obviously people are noticing here at home how well your state is doing as well because they put out these lists, these rosters of where people are renting U-Hauls and taking them to. And I think I just saw the 2022 list where Georgia was in the top 10. Uh, there were seven or, seven or eight in terms of the top destinations in the country for people moving with U-Hauls. I think that's a very sort of fascinating metric to take a look at. Unsurprisingly, dead last place, California. I think Texas and Florida were close one and two. You guys right there in the top 10. What are you seeing in terms of in-migration, not in terms of international business, I know that that was a separate goal in Davos, just folks around the country picking up from wherever they're living and saying, you know what, we're heading to Georgia now? Well, if you look, guy, they are. They're coming to the south and the southeast, and it's because of competitive environments. That's one of the things I've talked about in Davos, the reason a lot of these manufacturers are coming to our state, even if they're you know, doing electric vehicles, uh, which that crowd out there, there likes. Um, but it's because we're a right-to-work state. It's because we have a great workforce and people want to work and they have a consistent, conservative, good business environment, low-tax environment, and it's just an ideal place for them to be. And the same could be said for a lot of the states that are around me and the governors that are leading those states. They have similar policies and we're competing and that competition makes us all good, whether it's you know, DeSantis in Florida, Bill Lee in Tennessee, and Governor Ivey in Alabama, uh, McMaster in South Carolina, and you look at what Governor Abbott is doing in, in uh, Texas and a lot of the other southern states. I mean, that's where everybody's going because yep. that's where the business environment's good. It's where people work. You can you can live free or die, if you will, um, and, and not be beholden and live your life in fear of the government. I do want to ask you about a big controversy and a flare-up in your state with these so-called cop city riots. I know there have been a number of arrests, members of Antifa, a lot of them from out of state, uh, charged with terrorism. I know that your administration is going to be uh, prosecuting a lot of those folks to the fullest extent of the law. Their little storyline, their fairy tale is, oh, we're just, we're just innocent protesters in favor of the environment. Um, and, you know, it's there's all this police brutality happening. Someone was killed, and I've seen even members of Congress, members of the squad, saying that the person who was killed was some sort of martyr, an innocent victim killed at the hands of the police, leaving out the evidence that that individual shot a Georgia state trooper during this melee. Some people in the press still trying to say this is all mostly peaceful, Uh, You have uh, clearly taken a different approach. You're saying there's no tolerance for this kind of behavior. You have now declared a state of emergency and mobilized the National Guard in terms of dealing with these riots. Just give us what's actually happening down there and why you decided to go the route of mobilizing the National Guard. Well, a couple of things. Number one, I mean, there are definitely peaceful environmental protesters that are involved uh, with the situation on the uh, cop city, if you will, or the Atlanta police training site. But you had an individual that, that fired upon a law enforcement official that was trying to clear the forest of these, you know, people that, that had really overtaken it. And they weren't supposed to be there. They'd been asked to leave. Uh, so obviously there was a fire return 
visited with the state trooper. I mean, you know, he, he literally was fighting for his lives. If we hadn't had medics there with the SWAT team when they went in, uh, he would have bled out right there. Uh, but there's no question he was fired upon first. And so, obviously, a lot of law enforcement returned fire. And that's, you know, just the facts that are out there. And, and I'm very confident of that. But we'll let the investigations processes play out. Uh, but unfortunately, there are these antagonists that are out there. Five of the six people that we arrested over the weekend doing damage to Atlanta Police Department vehicle and busting out storefront windows, uh, five or six of them were from out of state. They were there uh, with the intentions of causing damage and wreaking havoc in our state. Uh, they were in no way peaceful, and they were dealt with very swiftly by state and local law enforcement. And I know things didn't look great on TV. But that scene was over in 40 minutes because of the response to the Atlanta Police Department, the Georgia State Patrol, and a lot of law enforcement that we had on the ground uh, contained very swiftly. And uh, we sent a message. We're just not going to put up with that. The mayor of Atlanta has done that, and I've done that. But we know those folks are still in our state, these you know, folks that are not peaceful and they want to cause havoc and they're anti-police and whatever else they believe. But they need to know that, we're going to come after them. That's why we called the guard up to help us um, secure some of our state and local assets, which frees up more of our law enforcement resources to be actually on patrols and on the ground uh, to make sure something like this happens, that we can jump on it quickly. And they just need to know if they do that, they are going to jail. We are charging 18 people right now, John, through all of this with domestic terrorism charges. And our Attorney General, Chris Carr, is engaged in that. Uh, so we are all taking this very seriously and sending a message. And we did this two years ago when we had civil unrest. We had thousands of people that were uh, demonstrating peacefully, and we helped them do that and kept them safe. But when instigators and, uh, you know, the, the other bad people that were coming in there, whether it was Antifa or whoever else, uh, we put the hammer down on them and we locked them up. And we're going to continue to do that in the great state of Georgia. Governor Kemp, last question. We began the interview talking about your record high approval ratings. I've now seen a few different pieces, one in the Cook Political Report, I think one in New York Magazine, saying, you know, don't look now, but Brian Kemp has really developed quite a record, quite a profile. You look at the political achievements, uh, the, the substantive achievements, maybe he would be someone very well positioned to run for president in 2024. Is that something you are considering at all? Well, I'll just tell you, guy, I'm two weeks into my second term, and we're in the middle of our legislative session with the new Speaker of the House and the new Lieutenant Governor. So focus, like I said earlier, on doing what I told Georgians I would do. That's my, you know, first responsibility, and that's what I'm going to stay focused on. I'm going to be very involved in the Republican Governors Association. I'm on the executive committee. I'm looking forward to helping a lot of good Republicans get elected governor in some of these states around the country and holding the seats we got and. You know, that's really where my focus is right now. You know, I, I do believe that the governor is going to have a big say-so in, in 24, and I'm looking forward to being a part of that. But right now I'm just focused on doing what I told people I would do here in the great state of Georgia. Okay, Brian Kemp, the 83rd governor of that great state of Georgia, our guest here on The Guy Benson Show, first time in 2023, I believe. So, Governor, it is always great to have you here, and I look forward to our next conversation. Same here. Thanks, Guy. Have a great weekend. You bet, you too. Let's take a quick break. We'll be right back on The Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk, Guy Benson Show. 
We're back. It's the Guy Benson Show. I just want to read this to you. This is amazing. Brian Griffin, press secretary for Governor Ron DeSantis in Florida, published this on his Twitter feed earlier today, an email he got from CNN. Let me read this to you. Hi, Mr. Griffin. My name is John Blake. I'm with CNN.com, the online news site for CNN. I'm requesting a response from Governor DeSantis or anyone from his office to an article I'm writing about Governor DeSantis' decision to block the teaching of a high school advanced placement course on African-American history in Florida. I've talked to one of the nation's leading scholars on fascism, along with another scholar who's an authority, uh, an authority rather, on fascism, and they say DeSantis's decision echoes similar decisions made by fascist dictators to force what one historian calls, quote, collective amnesia about the past. That's the email that they sent to DeSantis's office. We've got these experts on fascism, and they say that this thing seems pretty fascist, like something a dictator would do to erase the past. Of course, black history is required to be taught in Florida schools. The response from Brian Griffin of the DeSantis office was this. John, your inquiry is absurd and, of course, false. There will always be extreme critics, but it is the media's choice whether to give them a platform and legitimize their extremism. If you choose to print such a critique and amplify it as a perspective by which we are guilty until proven innocent, it will speak more to the moral bankruptcy and untruthfulness of your outlet than anything else. If this is what CNN considers journalism, it deserves to fail. Sincerely, Brian Griffin, press secretary for Ron DeSantis. That's how you have to deal with these people. Totally absurd. Treat them as such. Another hour coming up. Jimmy Fallon here next. From the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. It is a brand new hour here on the Guy Benson Show, broadcasting today from Olympia, Washington, capital city in this state. Glad to be here. Glad to have you all along. GuyBensonShow.com, our website podcast is free on demand every day. Follow us on social media at Guy Benson Show on Twitter and Instagram. Fox News alert as we get going here in the middle hour. The Dow closes barely in the green, up 28 points, way down from session highs, finishing out the week at 33,977. Well, joining us now once again, back partially by popular demand and mostly mm-hmm. by contractual obligation, is our friend and colleague Jimmy Fallon, host of Fox Across America on Fox News Radio, many of these same stations and many more. Uh, that's Monday through Friday, every weekday, noon to 3 Eastern. And uh, Jimmy, back in New York, holding down the fort. Thanks for doing this. Great to talk to you. Oh, it's an honor to be back in your studio. Guy, a lot of people don't know Guy Benson, but I'm basically your fault as a Fox News Radio host because you were kind enough to allow me to fill in for you from time to time. Mm-hmm. And then when a spot opened up in the lineup and all the other bigger names had turned it down or demanded far too much money, they were yeah. like, what if we let Guy's opener uh, actually yeah. give, get the gig? So No, it's true. You actually you won the job on the 15th ballot. <laughs> the Kevin McCarthy of Fox <laughs> News Radio hosts. <laughs> no, and, and you're doing great things, and it's, it's just a very fun show. Oh. And, you know, it's, our shows could not really be all that much more different, I guess, from each other. They're very distinct, mm. but I think that's part of the joy of the lineup with Kill Me in the Morning, then you and then me. It's three very different shows that don't always sound exactly 
like a lot of what's out there in yes. the talk radio universe, which is good. I, I think variety, competition, that sort of thing, I welcome all of it. No, me as well. I, we, I consider, I'm not kidding, the Fox News radio lineup, uh, we're like escape pods from what would traditionally be talk radio. I, you know, I spent a lot of time driving a taxi. As you know, I work that reference into every media appearance I make. Yeah, you have mentioned that before, I believe. <laughs> but I spent so much time listening to in, in my taxi to what seemed like such regimented talk radio. And I was like, man, you know, what if you actually just did this in a different vibe, in a different space? And I, and I definitely think you do a phenomenal job of that. And I'm not just saying it because it's written here on the index card with a $20 bill next to it. Uh, yes, I well, think... there's a gun pointed at you right now. <laughs> well, there's so also the gun. You, re- you read that very well. Thank you. <laughs> God, you're the best, man. Uh, but one last thing. I just want to remark on your location in Olympia, Washington. So normally I yeah. open for you on the radio. But out in the great state of Washington, I will be out there in two weeks. I will be in Federal Way right outside of Seattle. There we go. Are you doing a comedy show? Yeah, yeah, yeah. At the Federal Way Performing Arts Center. It's actually uh, Friday night, March the 3rd is when I'll be there. Uh, so you're kind of my opener in the state, guy, for once. There we go. Boom. Yeah, well, I'll get. I'll actually get some laughs, and then we'll see if there's <laughs> any left for you. That's, sort of, that's the goal here. Now, uh, Jimmy, I do uh, want to ask you. I know you're a mm-hmm. big sports fan. Mm. Now, I assume – I'm actually not sure about this because – and I could be jumping to wrong conclusions. Because you are a Yankees fan in Major League Baseball, as I am, mm-hmm. usually – that translate in, uh, translates into you being a New York Giants fan in football. Is that correct? Yes. I root for the Giants. Uh, I root for the Yankees. Although okay. I, I want you to know I grew up in a Raider house. My oldest brother, Joey, was a big Raider fan. Huh. And they won a Super Bowl in first grade. So I did give the Raiders the time of day in my youth. But in my adulthood, guy, I'm just rooting for whoever covers the spread. You know, the, the, yeah. f- the first jersey I got Lincoln was a Giants plus 10 jersey <laughs> yes so i mean which is you know the the dime reference i think there mm-hmm. uh to daniel jones and you know the, the giants had a much better season than expected fell and bit the dust pretty hard in philadelphia last mm-hmm. round so you've got these uh, two championship games for each conference heading to the super bowl niners eagles is first on fox 3 p.m eastern on sunday and then later that evening early evening the chiefs playing host to the bengals uh, who you got in those games, Jimmy? Wow. Okay. I I like the Eagles winning the first game, and I love the feel-good mm-hmm. story of Brock Purdy, but he's never played in this environment. I don't think people understand just how vile and debauched Lincoln Financial Field gets when the Eagles. Oh no, are they're criminals. Home. Every yeah. every and like here's the thing: I am not a believer in in casting too wide of a net and painting with a broad brush and smearing broad groups of people. That's wrong, and I am opposed to it. I'm doing the politician thumble. I'm saying this this is wrong. I'm opposed to it. However, every single Philadelphia sports fan is a criminal. <laughs> and if not on paper, in their hearts. Philadelphia, right. just so people can appreciate this around the country, they're the only fans left in America that are still throwing beer at $22 a beer. You know, beer has gotten it's so expensive. You get in a fight at Yankee Stadium, guy. When we were kids, everybody fighting would get hit with beer from the onlookers. Now you get in a fight. Don't don't touch the beer. Don't touch the beer. No, now you get in a fight. You get hit by an iPad mini. Someone throws an engagement ring. They're not throwing beer, dude. Yeah, it's it's liquid gold. So, yeah, I I think the Eagles, I hate to say it. I I don't care for them, obviously. I think the Eagles favored in the game. You've got the Eagles winning and moving on to the Super Bowl. What about the AFC game? Uh, you know, my heart's in Cincinnati. I, I'm married into a big Ohio family. And honestly, uh, you know, I, I really root for Bill Hemmer as a sports fan, him being a big That's Bengal right. guy. 
and but he's like a real fair. fan. Like Hemmer was he doing, really is. he was doing like sports talk radio when he was like 15 back in Ohio, and like can actually talk to you like chapter and verse, not only about the players but about where they went to high school, where they went to college. Oh and, no, we, we've had him on here yeah. talking about, it, and we have to like cut him off at times. Yeah. Like, Bill, we, we, we appreciate that very much, but like we got let's bring it back here, sir. The question was about immigration. Um, so like, you know, so he he is a huge Bengals fan. I've got nothing against the Chiefs. Mm-hmm. I think Mahomes is a wizard. Yep. We'll see if he's playing at 100%. You know, he's banged mm-hmm. up in the last game. I-, I like the Chiefs fan base. I think that looks like a great atmosphere at Arrowhead. Yep. I also like Burrow, and it's hard to root against Hemmer, so I, I don't, I'm kind of torn on the later game. Yeah, I'll be rooting for the Niners, if that wasn't clear. I'll be rooting for the Niners in the early game. All right, fair. And listen, I'd love to see the Niners win. I'd love to see a rematch of the Bengals-Niners, because that's the one team that stopped the Bengals in the Super Bowl twice. And uh, it, I think it's going to be interesting no matter how it shakes out, because the lines, the betting lines guy, are really low. Philadelphia is favored by two. The Bengals are favored by one, which tells you they anticipate good games. So for, if nothing uh, else, for people who— Do you who agree? Like, are, are, are you, you're a betting man, yes. sir, uh, to put it lightly, based on some of the things you've talked about in the past. Uh, have there been some— Friendly or less than friendly wagers made on either of these games, Jimmy? Uh, in the Fela House, okay, there's a big push being made to go all in on the Bengals. I haven't committed to anything yet this weekend. But you need a big push. Who is this? Your wife being well, like, come on. You, well, you know like, what I, risk, risk our house on the Bengals, Jimmy. Well, well, you know what I do on my show just to up the intellectual bar from the regular quality of broadcast is every Friday I bring on a 14-year-old named Lincoln Fela mm-hmm. to close out That's the right. week. And yep. Lincoln is all like he thinks the Bengals like he's touched the money and I, I you know I don't want to explain it to him that that's not how it works in gambling like you don't want to jinx it but he really thinks the Bengals are winning this game and is is making a strong push behind the scenes for a big wager like a life changing amount of money on the Bengals. Well, it's not his money, is it? And he's, and he's 14. I'm just like, just be careful, Jimmy. Come on, Lincoln. Be careful, Jimmy. We, we want you to have this job because you like this job, not because, you know, there's someone waiting outside to break your kneecaps or something. So just please be careful, and whoever you bet on, you know, let me know, and, and that might influence my rooting decisions. Um, before we go, I do want to talk, since, since you have made, uh, you know, totally unpredictably a reference to your past as a, as a cab driver, <laughs> something that you are very shy about, almost ashamed of. You never mention it. But Ever. since you brought it up, I, I feel mm-hmm. less guilty. Um, we had a discussion on our show this week about, it was a big story about the creeping encroachment of tipping. Yes. Where you're expected to tip all over the place. Yes. And we had a debate about where you should tip and where you shouldn't tip, and do you tip more for certain types of service than others. What was the general expectation as a cab driver? Like, it's like you, you expect to get your fare and a tip yep. or not really? And has it changed? Three things. Three things get tipped, okay? They, all the jobs that add an ER traditionally. Driver, waiter, stripper. Those are the only three things. <laughs> and you've the, been all three. If you th- if th- I've listened. The rent don't pay itself, pal. But when <laughs> you really think about it, traditionally it was driver, waiter, stripper. What changed the trajectory of the tipping conversation is the credit card. Because now that mm. everything is cashless, you're always faced with the screen. 
and the prospect of them turning the screen around well, to show you the tipping on, so options. Like, I would agree, like bartender mm-hmm. ends with an ER, but you tip bartenders. Cashier ends with ER, but I'm not sure about that. No. I mean, I was giving you my big three. I mean, those were traditionally the things. You tip your hairdresser. You tip the, share, the shampoo girl if you're getting your hair done at a salon. You tip the blackjack dealer if you're winning in the casino. Like, there are other a- outlets. But what it's crept into now is, you know, like Starbucks always had a tip cup. Barista's always had a tip cup. And, you know, you threw money here, here and there. But now, but now, yeah, exactly. You threw in the change they gave you, essentially, is what happened. But now every single transaction is now a standoff. Like if you're buying something at the gas station, paying by credit card, if they have that type of merchant, it's now, oh, do you want to tip me for handing yeah. you the pack of gum? And you have to say, like, no, basically <laughs> no. right to their face, which they're is like, really awkward. Yeah, they're like, they're like, okay, oh, you don't want to tip? Okay, just touch this picture of my child. Just touch the picture of my hungry child uh, to say you don't want to tip. He's crying. We lost everything on a sports bet. Now, <laughs> last thing, you might, you might call you and I, Jimmy, uh-huh. talkers, uh, yeah. ERs. Mm-hmm. I, we should set up some sort of, like, tip function on our shows. Like, oh, did you, I'm sorry, did you like that segment? Well, Venmo me. How about that? I mean, that, man. you know, we might be, let's, let's brainstorm about this. Let's develop that a little bit. Jimmy Fail of Fox stuff. Across America, every day, noon to 3 Eastern on Fox News Radio. Jimmy, have a great weekend. Good luck with your bets. You're the best, GB. I'll see you soon. Later. All right, we'll be right back. Guy Benson Show continues next. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. Story in the New York Times that was published late yesterday caught my attention. Here is the lead of the story. Colin Ferd Mattis' trajectory from a working-class upbringing in East New York to the Ivy League and corporate law abruptly ended at about 1 a.m. on May 30th, 2020, when a Molotov cocktail ignited the center console of an empty police car during a Black Lives Matter protest. On Thursday afternoon, Judge Brian Kogan of the U.S. District Court in Brooklyn sentenced Mr. Mattis, one of two young lawyers who burned the vehicle during the protest, days after the murder of George Floyd, to 12 months and a day in prison and a year of post-release supervision. Mr. Mattis, 35, has lost his law license, having pleaded guilty to conspiracy to commit arson, and acknowledge that he had broken the law he had sworn to uphold as an attorney. Now, he may lose much more. The guardianship and planned adoption of three foster children, the oldest of whom is 14. And then they talk about one of his uh, co-conspirators, another one of these elitist lawyers, left-wingers, who was involved in the burning of a police car during the riots. And her name is Aruj Rahman. And she's also in very serious trouble. And the story is kind of written from a very sympathetic vantage point. In fact, just the euphemisms that you just heard in the verbiage of the story describing what they were participating in as protests. No, there are protests and then there are riots. When you are burning police cars, it is not a protest. It is violence. It is dangerous. It is rioting. And they just gloss over that. In fact, here, just listen to the headline of this story and then the subheadline. During George Floyd protests, two lawyers' futures went up in flames. Colliford Mattis, 
who was sentenced Thursday, and Aruj Rahman burned a police car. They lost their licenses to practice law. He may lose his foster children. And then you've got photos of each of them accompanying the story. So in the very first fragment of the headline, they call this protest again, which it is not. Then they talk about the futures. Oh, the the futures of these poor young lawyers went up in flames. Yes, went up in the flames that they set with their violent criminal actions. Of course they should lose their law licenses and their freedom. They committed felonies, dangerous felonies. And maybe if they were worried about their futures, their incomes as lawyers their ability to adopt children or live normal lives, they should have considered those things before they engaged in extremely serious illegal behavior. And just the sympathy, the tone, the framing of this piece to me is really gross. Look, if you listen to the show a lot, you know that I do not really have very much love lost or a soft spot in my heart for the January 6th rioters. And I know some people have said there's been mistreatment and there's been a miscarriage of justice and people have been held for way too long and all of that. I just don't really have a ton of sympathy for people who were involved in a violent protest storming the Capitol, right? I'm just, I'm not really going to shed a bunch of tears for them. That being said, can you imagine this kind of treatment in the New York Times for those people? Like, oh, look at their futures being stolen. Oh, you know, their lives will never be the same. What about their families? What about their children? I think the response from a lot of New York Times journalists and readers would be, well, they should have thought about that before they beat some cops and, you know, smashed their way into the U.S. Capitol to interrupt the peaceful transfer of power. That would be the response. These are insurrectionists, they would say. Well, what would you call throwing handmade, homemade bombs into a police car during, quote-unquote, protests to make a political point? Is that not pretty insurrection-y? Seems like it to me. The fact that this pair, they have had so many stories written in the press about this terrible ordeal that is happening to them. And the journalists will kind of acknowledge, okay, yeah, they did some crimes, but do they have to be punished this seriously? Yes. You have to make examples of people. Rioters torching police cars are very good candidates to be those examples. These were adults making decisions engaged in political terrorism. That's what they were doing. They deserve everything that's coming to them and more, as far as I'm concerned. And yet the kid gloves and the sob story, that's sort of the treatment that they get, I think because a lot of their fellow travelers in the media are kind of on their side. They're like, gosh, you know, they're basically where I am, maybe just one step a little bit further. Left-wing radicals are 
kind of sexy and romanticized to their fellow leftists. Whereas right-wing radicals, wow, very dangerous. Put them away, lock up the key, bad, bad people. These folks, you know, what? They torched one police car. Should that really ruin their lives? (laughs) It was not a youthful indiscretion. It was not a mistake in the moment. A series of choices were made by these people. Extremely bad, dangerous, criminal choices. And they should absolutely go to prison and have very serious ramifications on their lives, no matter how sad that makes some journalists at the New York Times. The Guy Benson Show is back right after this break. Stay with us. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. From the Pacific Northwest today, it's the Guy Benson Show. Glad to have you here. Thank you for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com. That's our website. Podcast is always free. With us now, Josh Krasauer, senior politics reporter at Axios and a Fox News contributor. Josh, welcome back. Hey, Guy. Welcome. Good to be back on the show and happy Friday. Now, I, of course, have been watching the RNC chair battle here for a couple of weeks, coming to a head today. One thing that I wanted to get your take on was a quote from Governor Ron DeSantis about the performance of the RNC and really the Republican Party writ large in 2022. He was lamenting a couple underwhelming or bad cycles in a row for Republicans, notwithstanding his incredible performance in Florida, clean sweep for Republicans down there. But he said this on another show, Cut 14, listen. Well, we've had three substandard election cycles in a row, 18, 20, and 22. And I would say of all three of those, 22 was probably the worst. I think we need uh, a change. I think we need to get some new blood in the RNC. Uh, I like what Harmeet Dillon has said about getting the RNC out of D.C. So setting aside the particular commentary on the RNC chair race, which I have not dialed into very closely for a number of reasons personally, but the assessment that DeSantis makes there about the party, whether that's on the RNC or any one person like Ronna McDaniel is a separate question, but I think it's interesting. He also said in that same answer, explaining why he thought 2022 might have been the worst cycle among 18, 20, and 22, he said, given the political environment of a very unpopular president in Biden, huge majorities of the people thinking the country is going in the wrong direction, that is an environment that's tailor-made to make big gains in the House and the Senate and in state houses all across the country, and yet... That didn't happen. Hard to argue with that, Josh. I think it's striking, given the source. It is. It's a very important voice in the Republican Party who may end up being the frontrunner for the 2024 presidential nomination. So anything Ron DeSantis says about the future of the party is going to resonate. Now, you know, the RNC members are – it doesn't follow the same rules of politics as an election. There are a lot of insular interests and other factors at play that um, may not listen to DeSantis or he may not be as big of a factor as he would be in any other election or primary uh, in, in this country. But, you know, look, I, I also think there's a, sort of a challenge, too. Uh, I, I, DeSantis's argument that 
2018, 2020, 2022 were almost all major disappointments for the Republican Party, losing the House uh, in, in, in 18, uh, you know, suffering a presidential loss in 20, and then just the disappointment of 2022, undoubtedly the case. So the challenge that, that Republicans are having, though, is uh, kind of identifying the problem. And uh, Harmeet Dillon uh, identifies that the Republicans have underperformed in recent elections, but she's associating herself with some of the figures who were driving that underperformance, like a Carrie Lake, uh, who, who, who you know, blew a very winnable race in Arizona uh, for the governorship. Uh, and, and a lot of the, the reasons why Republicans lost, because they tied themselves too closely to Trump or they tied themselves too closely to uh, election denialism in, in the last election or had ex- extreme views that, that were rejected by voters, that is not what, 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 what uh, Harmeet Dillon had talked about. She actually wants more of that of that type of activism. So yeah, you know, yeah, I, I'm, I, I'm less interested, Josh, in the RNC race as opposed to what that assessment means for the future of the party, the types of people that will be nominated for certain races and in certain contests. And of course, the big question out there involving DeSantis, will he or won't he, for the number one job at the top of the ticket and his looking back, his reflection on the last three cycles, you know, how he could maybe transition that anger and sort of channel it and then make an argument for himself based on that. That's sort of intriguing to me. Relatedly, though, I saw earlier in the week you had a story and some tweets about a number of national polls showing Donald Trump pulling ahead by a wider margin again in the national Republican primary, which is still kind of theoretical right now. He's the only announced candidate. No one else is in. There's an expectation that a lot of other people might get in. But Trump had been waning, and in recent weeks it appears that he has regained some of that ground as the frontrunner with DeSantis in second place and everyone else far below them. Then in the last day or two, I've seen a number of other polls showing a much better position for DeSantis, both nationally and in some states. A New Hampshire poll had DeSantis in first place by a significant margin, South Carolina as well. I mean, those are obviously important states in the nominating process. It's not a secret there. I just wonder how you're reading some of these tea leaves. I know it's ludicrously early and there's no one else announced as a candidate, but still it's sort of intriguing to try to follow the ebb and flow and read into what's happening and why. Yeah, I I think you you kind of summed it up very well there, Guy, in that, look, two things can be true at the same time. Uh, Donald Trump is is very vulnerable, and and, and someone like Ron DeSantis is is, is in very good position to defeat him in in, in 2024. But Trump is not going away either, and he still maintains a hold on a sizable share of of the party. And um, look, sure. I, I see so many stories, guy, in the, in the mainstream press about like this party official not supporting Trump, or you know he's not gotten the endorsements like he did uh, in 2020. Well, this reminds me more of 2016, where he didn't have any uh, party support, and yet still was able to prevail by getting a sizable faction within the Republican Party. And he's now a former president, and he has the name ID, he has the profile. And he's not, and, and you know, I'm getting some vibes of 2016 also 
with every Republican who wants to run in this race or is looking at the, the, the field going after DeSantis, but not going after the guy who's leading in, in many of these, these very polls. And that is – I'm going to be in New Hampshire actually tomorrow, Guy, to cover Trump's first uh, campaign event of 2024, uh, speaking to uh, the New Hampshire Republican Party, uh, an annual meeting that was already scheduled. He's going to be doing a, an event that's not a big campaign rally but more of a smaller uh, ballroom at a high school um, and it'll be a, a good test to see how he performs in these early states, how his stump speech can evolve when he's not just doing these huge mega rallies that got him so much attention in the last few years. But, you know, I, I, I think anyone who rules Trump out is, is, is foolish. And there is a disconnect between sort of the, the insiders that a lot of reporters talk to and it's an understandable part of the process. But the voters were the ones who nominated Trump in 2016 in the first place. It wasn't the party RNC party leaders. It wasn't the the, the lawmakers in Congress. It, it was the voters, the grassroots folks at, on the ground. And he hasn't lost uh, the whole lot of support. And I think if, if, if there is a change, it's not going to be because of a dislike of Trump. It's going to be because they want a younger, fresher face who may be talking about issues that are more resonant going forward, like a, like a Ron DeSantis. Yeah, and I've been talking about that dynamic for a while. There's, of course, the always Trump contingent who are all in for him and only him. There's the never Trump contingent, another part of the party. I think what could be interesting in 2023 and 2024 is the over Trump group, people who have voted for him twice, people who have been enthusiastic supporters or, you know, at least begrudging supporters of his for a while who now want to move on. What do they do? And you're right. I'm having like nightmarish flashbacks of 2015, 2016, the slings and arrows coming at Ron DeSantis rather than Trump, who is the front runner. I think indisputably he's the front runner. Not saying that he is the runaway front runner, can't be beaten, going to be the nominee no matter what, but he's at the front of the pack. And that's something that I think the rest of the field needs to recognize in a way that didn't happen for far too long back in 2016. It's sort of like we've been through all of this before. We've seen it before, Josh. And I do want to talk about some of the polling that uh, we just alluded to. Toward the end of the week, some better polling for DeSantis, worse for Trump. Again, none of this really matters that much at this stage. But earlier in the week, it seemed like Trump was putting some distance between himself and the rest of the field again and sort of solidifying his position and I got to thinking about why that might be the case. I know one of your theories was Joe Biden's problems with the classified documents and that whole scandal sort of redounding to Trump's benefit. I think there might be some truth to that. But another theory that I have, speaking of 2016, but in the general election, I remember sort of the seesaw effect in polling and momentum in the general when it felt like when Trump was front and center, Hillary benefited. When she was front and center, Trump benefited, and it went back and forth. It's like whoever the people heard from last, they were least excited about. And ultimately, at the very end, Hillary had a couple of bad news cycles, and I think that really helped Trump ultimately squeak out the victory that he needed in the Electoral College. Similarly, and maybe this is a stretch in your mind, I just wonder what you think of it. Trump has been kind of out of sight, out of mind for a number of weeks, if not months, compared to the way that he normally is just dominant in the news. And I wonder if the fact that he has been kind of in the background has actually helped him based on that effect that I was just describing. Yeah, guy, I think you're hitting on something very important, which is whenever Trump is not in the news, 
he tends to do better in the in the public opinion polls. And one of the big developments this week, which I think is uh, gotten a little bit underplayed, is the decision by Meta to let Trump back on Facebook, back on Instagram. And I don't think that's good news for 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 the former president. I think uh, the more if you look at some of those posts he's been pushing on Truth Social, you know, the more that stuff gets out in the broader universe. I don't think that will help him, um, both in the Republican nomination battle and, and, and if he even does get to the point to, to winning the nomination. So, I mean, look, I think exposure, especially more recently, has not been good uh, for Donald Trump. And that is he's going to have to put a good campaign together. He's going to have to hire us, you know, more competent people. Uh, I think this week is this weekend is going to be an interesting test because he's actually starting the campaign. He's actually doing things candidates do. He's not going to have the big rallies. He doesn't have the money uh, guy in his campaign account to do the kinds of things he did when he was president running for re-election. So this this early stage is going to be a bit – it's more than the polls. This, this is going to be the big first test on whether he can mm. recapture that, that magic in 2016 and and get some of that, that juice into his campaign heading into 2024. Well, and it's somewhat ironic in that let's say hypothetically – we're going to see a rematch of Trump and Biden in 2024. I'm not necessarily sure I'd put all my money on that, but there's at least a very plausible chance that that could happen. Part of the reason I think Biden won in 2020 was he ran that sort of boring basement campaign. He allowed Trump to suck up all the oxygen, get all the attention. People were tired of it, and they wanted an alternative that they felt would be more moderate and sort of uh, more normal. And I don't think that's exactly how Biden is governed, of course, and I've been highly critical of him. But I think that was sort of the way that he was able to chart his path to the victory that he won. Biden, you sort of wonder if they were to face each other again, if Trump could actually impose the self-discipline upon himself to run something of a basement campaign and be out of sight, out of mind, less top of mind all the time in your face – That could actually help his chances. I just don't know if he has it in him to do that. He loves the spotlight. He craves the spotlight. He believes that him being in front of every camera and microphone possible is the best possible thing for him. And the truth might be the opposite. And that might be the way that he could win a general election if he gets there. I'm just not sure if that's something he can do, something perhaps you and I can discuss and others can contemplate here for uh, many, many months because we are still so far away even from the early primary and caucus contests of next year. That being said, Josh, I did do a segment here on the show yesterday, a very early initial analysis of the 2024 Senate map. I want to get your analysis on that, plus on the president's rough start to the new year next on The Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk, Guy Benson Show. Josh Crossauer of Axios is our guest on The Guy Benson Show. Turning to the 2024 Senate terrain, Josh. House Republicans underperformed but won in 2022. The Senate Republicans had a disaster where they didn't even hold ground under these conditions. They actually lost ground. They lost a seat. It is really hard, and I don't want to, like, knock on wood or something here. I don't want to jinx it for the Republicans, but it seems almost impossible for them to perform worse in 2024, given the map being maybe as favorable as possible to a party coming up uh, in next year, next fall. And it seems to me like netting two seats, which is what they would need to get to even a bare majority, should be not just possible but probable 
given what the map looks like, I mean, you never know. You leave it to the Republicans to find ways to screw things up. But, I mean, it is really, really tough sledding ahead for Senate Democrats, right? Yeah, it's about as good of a map as you could ever draw up. Republicans, I, I don't think, are going to have to worry about a single seat. Rick Scott, who has got his own money to spend in Florida, is the most, on paper, theoretically vulnerable uh, Republican senator. I don't think he'll have a problem getting reelected. Uh, you know, the, Demo- the one thing I would caution Republicans, though, and I think there's some encouraging developments at the senatorial committee level where Rick Scott did not get involved in primaries, but the new chairman, Steve Daines from Montana, big, big battleground, in 2024, uh, is already making signals that he is already working to recruit candidates to get good electable nominees in these red states. Because, you know, guy, after all, they lost these states in 20, Republicans lost uh, these red states in 2018 because even then they nominated some pretty weak candidates. Matt Rosendale in Montana, uh, you also had in West Virginia a fairly weak nominee as well, uh, in, in Patrick Morrissey. Those folks want to run again in 2024. So the big challenge is. At the Republican level in Washington, making sure they've got good candidates. Governor Justice is looking at a Senate race in West Virginia. Yep. You've got yep. um, a lot of Republicans in Montana that I think it would be electable, both inside uh, the world of politics, outside the world of politics. If you get a good candidate or even a decent candidate in any of those states, they, they should have the advantage. Just a few weeks ago, Josh, last question. It seemed like the Biden world operation was ebullient. They felt like they had the wind at their backs. They were feeling empowered based on what happened in the midterms. Historically, pretty darn good for their party. And it seemed like the momentum was building for Joe Biden to run for reelection and seek four more years in the White House. And then just the opening weeks of 2023 have not been kind to Joe Biden. A lot of it is like self-inflicted. Just your quick reflections on the really tough start to the new year for this president. Yeah, I I sometimes feel like a broken record in looking at Biden's prospects in 2024 because, look, the age factor, you look at every poll and majorities of Democrats, not Republicans, but Democrats are are, are not excited about him running again. And they're worried about his advanced age. He's going to be 82 uh, if he does get reelected, almost 90 years old at the end of his second term. Uh, that, that even even for even though we're living longer and you know people can can maintain good health into into their 80s that that is uh, by far would be the oldest uh, president we've had in American history and that's dogging a lot of voters. Uh, you know I think what Democrats are worried about and I, I talk to them on, on a regular basis. If Biden didn't run uh, and his numbers are going on the downside and he would lose to Trump in a couple of these new polls that came out this week. But look, if, if Biden didn't run, you have two big problems. Kamala Harris would be the the most likely. Uh, your successor, and that scares a lot of Democrats. Yep. And even if he wasn't, <laughs> you have this civil war between the left and the mainstream moderates, and they worry that what happened to the Republicans in 2022 would happen to them in 2024. That the left yep. will take, scares the heck out of out of the Democrats, and that's why yeah. So Biden, they might be kind of stuck, right? They're like, "Gosh, can we really win with Joe Biden again for all these reasons?" But can we win without him? I mean, that might be part of the dilemma that they're facing. So it's not like it's all hunky-dory over on Democratic side either. Josh Krasauer, we've got to leave it there for now. Up on a break, new hour to come. Josh, always appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Thanks, guys. Have a good weekend. Final hour of the Guy Benson Show. Upcoming, Molly Hemingway is here next. (laughs) 
It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It's the happy hour on this Friday from Olympia, Washington, in the Pacific Northwest. It's the Guy Benson Show. Very glad to have you here. Thank you very much for tuning in. This happy hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Fantastic. It's delicious stuff. You should test it out if you haven't already. I hear from many of you all the time as you try it and enjoy the long drink at thelongdrink.com. That's their website. Everything you need to know right there, where they're sold. You can order online. TheLongDrink.com. Always drink responsibly, 21 plus only. Our website here at the show, GuyBensonShow.com. All of your show and program related needs right there, including the free podcast, every day on demand, no charge to you. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on social media at GuyBensonShow, Twitter and Instagram. While you're at it, follow me personally, both platforms, at Guy P. Benson. With us now, Molly Hemingway, editor-in-chief at The Federalist, Fox News contributor, co-author of two best-selling books, one of which I want to talk about here in just a second. Molly, great to have you back. It's great to be here with you. So earlier in the week, I discussed the latest episode in the Kavanaugh smear machine efforts to never, ever let some of their lies die out or peter out. This is something that I think will be a project on the left for the rest of Justice Kavanaugh's life, unfortunately. And Mark Thiessen was on the show with me, and he said, look, they're going to keep saying stuff. I don't think it really matters because we won and they lost, and they don't have the truth on their side. And I completely agree with him on that. I, however, on this show at least, always feel compelled to get down into the details to explain why they're lying and expose what they're doing, because my attitude, especially on this, which is sort of like a radicalizing episode, you wrote literally the book on it, co-authored it, Justice on Trial, about that whole circus. If they are going to keep the lies alive or even invent new ones, I think they need to be specifically rebutted every single time. And I'd imagine you've heard about this movie that they've made, and it's getting positive press. The Washington Post wrote about it. I guess there's a new alleged revelation in the movie from the Yale accuser, Deborah Ramirez, who was already discredited. Now I guess they're saying that Kavanaugh did a second thing to her that she buried so deep in her psyche that she didn't remember it at all, even when she was asked specifically about it by Ronan Farrow at The New Yorker. I mean, probably average people tune all of this out and other people who can think critically say, come on, like, She's uncovering even more memories now, years later. But this is what they're running with, Molly. And I just wonder what your thoughts are as you see this latest chapter being written almost, you know, in the sequel, if you ever write another book about this. Well, I'm so glad you're covering it. And this is actually why Carrie Severino and I wrote the book Justice on Trial. We knew because of what happened with the Clarence Thomas confirmation hearing and more importantly, what happened after the Clarence Thomas confirmation hearings had taken place, we knew this would be a lifelong project of the left to keep pushing these ideas about Justice Kavanaugh. And we wanted to just get the history down 
instead of just thinking, oh, we won, we can move on. I mean, that, there's a truth to that. But it's also yeah. true that the opponents never stop pushing some of these theories, and you have to respond to them, and it's very important. And I haven't yet seen the documentary, but I've certainly read a lot about it and, and cover, and, you know, seen what, what the allegations are. And for the most part, what I think is interesting is you've had a lot of people spend a lot of time and a lot of money and a lot of hours trying to substantiate these claims that Justice Kavanaugh, you know, who was for 12 years a federal judge who had gone through six background checks, that he was secretly a serial gang rapist who was, like, roaming the streets of suburban Maryland. And a lot of effort has been put into supporting this theory, and really nothing has come from it. I'm not surprised because we interviewed a ton of people for our book, including a lot of ex-girlfriends and people who knew him in high school and college. You know, that this kind of smear against him was just kind of on the wrong target. He, you know, certainly a guy who enjoyed high school and college, you know, the frat guy type guy, but he was not someone who had a reputation for any of the kinds of things that were put against him. And these late, this latest documentary sort of regurgitates some of the same claims that were out there during the confirmation hearings. It doesn't actually add anything new. And so um, I think that is sort of a testament to his character that they have been unable, even after a lot of effort and work, yeah. to come up with something that supports this. No, I think that's an interesting uh, observation there. And I would also add, as I did the other day, they have a personal animus. I think they're still bitter that they lost that fight, and their smear machine ultimately failed. Thank goodness. Justice actually prevailed. The truth actually prevailed. But part of this also, and one of the accuser's lawyers basically admitted this after the fact, that the whole point of putting him through this was to put an asterisk next to his name on any decisions that he might sign on to on the high court that they don't like in terms of an outcome politically. Uh, specifically, they were talking about abortion. Uh, one of uh, Dr. Ford's lawyers just said that out in the open, like the quiet part out loud. So I think that that's the motive here, the primary motive and why they keep going after this stuff. And I just made the point there were four allegations. You know this even better than I do. There was the one about a woman from Colorado who then she herself came out and said this is totally ludicrous, completely false. So that one died. The gang rape thing was the most salacious, most ridiculous of all of them, and yet Senate Democrats totally bought into it hook, line, and sinker in the moment. Uh, the person who was largely responsible for perpetuating that lie is now in prison, Michael Avenatti. Then Dr. Ford, no proof at all. Her star witness and friend has turned on her, saying that she doesn't believe Dr. Ford's story, saying that she was tampered with as a witness to try to get her to lie in a way to hurt Kavanaugh when that wasn't actually the truth that she remembers. And so when you have the friend and the star witness and Dr. Ford's own father both saying that they do not believe her and there's no evidence supporting the fact that she ever even met Brett Kavanaugh, that is a totally unsubstantiated allegation. And then so the last one of the four is this Deborah Ramirez. And I just remind people, the first allegation that she made against him before, I guess, this, this second incident that they're trying to talk about in the movie, the first one... She was, like, calling around to her old Yaley schoolmates, like, hey, did this happen to me? Was it Brett Kavanaugh? And no one was really sure. The three people she placed in the room all said it didn't happen. And yet they moved forward with the allegation anyway. Like, it's crowdsourced nonsense with no proof whatsoever. And I guess just the quote-unquote new element of the movie is, oh, then he came back and did another thing to her that was so traumatizing that she had totally forgotten about it. And I just wonder, Molly... Aside from hardcore partisans 
who want to believe this stuff, does this kind of thing stand to reason or stand up to scrutiny for anyone else? So I'm glad that you kind of summed up what the different claims were, because each of the claims, they might not have had substantiation, but they kind of made sense, except for the one that you mentioned with Deborah Ramirez, which never really made sense. She was unclear on what had happened. She was unclear on whether it had happened. She was unclear on who had committed it. And then she had like a very convoluted story of how she was trying to piece together something to come up with why Brett Kavanaugh had maybe done something that she wasn't sure what it was. It was very different from even the other claims, whether they were completely made up or not, that at least had a clear path of reasoning. Um, And yet, even, you know, even hardcore partisans didn't believe her. We interviewed a ton of people who knew Brett Kavanaugh from high school, college, and law school, many of whom disagreed with him completely on politics, who said that they just found, you know, that they had no reason to believe the other claims, but they actually found this one in particular to just not make any sense at all. Yeah. So, I mean, it does feel like I am once again relitigating something that happened years ago, and that's exactly what we're doing. That might be why it feels that way. It's because we're doing it. But I think it's important and it's necessary to keep the record clear, to correct the record, to remind people of the record, the evidence, the lack thereof, and they're going to keep going. And as long as they're going to keep going and as long as I have a platform, I'm going to push back because I think this is one of the great disgusting character assassination attempts in American political history. It did fortunately fail, and he's on the court, but uh, their attempts at retribution apparently will not end, and that's why I really want to ask that question of our guest Molly Hemingway. You should read the book just so you remember what's true, Justice on Trial, that she co-authored with Carrie Severino. Meanwhile, Molly, there's a story in the New York Times came out yesterday about the John Durham investigation into the origins of the Russia probe into Donald Trump. And the framing of this from the New York Times, the headline, How Barr's Quest to Find Flaws in the Russia Inquiry Unraveled. And that's a reference to Attorney General Bill Barr, who delegated this task to John Durham. And what the Times is basically saying is what we found out is Durham was actually at some point tipped off on something alleged to have happened by Trump, so he ended up investigating Trump, and that never leaked out, which is proof that Bill Barr is a partisan and it's all a hack job and the whole Durham thing has unraveled. As you read this story, Molly, I know that you've had several tweets about it. You have many thoughts about this New York Times story. What are some of the big takeaways that you think the audience needs to know? Oh, dear. So this latest story on the Russia collusion hoax was written by three people who wrote a lot of the pieces on the Russia collusion hoax. And they were kind of embarrassed when it all fell apart because they had been big partisans who had pushed the idea that it was legitimate. And so I read this piece as an attempt to sort of, I don't know, make it seem like it wasn't so foolish that they pretended to believe it or that they did believe it. And so they're analyzing the Durham probe and they are doing it in the same way that they did all these Russia collusion hoax stories, which is a lot of anonymous sources. There's not a single, like, quoted person that I, that I, that I remember reading in this lengthy discussion who are shading things in a way that they think will be favorable to the decision by our intel agencies to be a part of this Russia collusion conspiracy theory. And 
you know, it's interesting because Durham has looked into a lot of stuff. I actually know from the outset that this was never really about prosecuting people who had participated in the Russia collusion hoax, so much as explaining how it took root. And um, I viewed this piece by the New York Times authors as a way to kind of throw water on an eventual report that will be coming out from Durham. But like so many things that they've done, they have these like selectively edited snippets that are designed to make you think one thing and they never quite follow falls through. Uh, for instance, they say they went and investigated stuff in Italy. I think this is related to one of the key players in the Russia collusion hoax, Joseph Bifford, who was involved in setting up some of the initial meetings. Durham was probably just running this down, and instead the New York Times presents it as they were investigating Donald Trump, and then it never leaked. I don't really believe anything about the way that they characterize these things. At the same time, I don't have a tremendous amount of confidence that the Durham report will be in any way satisfactory for the people who care about the damage caused by the Russia collusion hoax. But um, so it's always worth you know it's always worth reading and, and studying. But these are people who are interested in protecting their own reputations and their own participation in this hoax. And I guess some of the proof might be in the report that we get from Durham, because he's tried to nail a few players on lying to the FBI-type charges, and because, frankly, the FBI, or at least elements of it, were kind of in on it, it's been hard to get convictions, so he's failed. And I think part of that is on the FBI, right? Were they really duped? Were they lied to, or were they kind of part of this collusion effort uh, to get Trump, I think to some extent, clearly they were, Durham will present his facts that he's able to uncover to the public at some point. Uh, I just think that this is kind of, you're right, getting the ground ready for whatever new narrative that they want to put out there. And if it ends up being relatively damning to the Russia collusion people who pushed all that, my guess is they'll just more or less ignore whatever John Durham has to say. And like, oh, well, look, he was over to on, uh, you know, prosecutions and they weren't able to really do anything on that front. So there's nothing to see here. That's still my best guess. I would imagine that there'll be some stuff in there that that's pretty problematic for the big national narrative that almost all the media bought into for years. Uh, I guess we'll see. And of course, there's also the framing here of Bill Barr being some sort of string pulling Trump hack who, you know, put this whole investigation together and put Durham in charge of it and made it seem like there was a lot of big progress on it. But he was withholding from the public the truth that this actually ended up turning back against Trump. I mean, Bill Barr is another one who, to me, he just engenders insane derangement and especially from people particularly invested in this story. And this would be, this New York Times piece, another element of that overall picture. Molly, before we let you go, the reinstatement of the former president, Donald Trump, on Facebook and Instagram, I guess Meta is the uh, parent company. I want to get your reaction right after this on The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Back with Molly Hemingway on The Guy Benson Show talking about the reinstatement of Donald Trump on some of these social media platforms. And Molly, I think you know that I'm not a great fan of Donald Trump's in terms of uh, what he did after the election in 2020 in particular. And I'm not thrilled at the prospect that he's running for president again. And if I had my druthers, he would just go away. I also feel like all these bans that came down on him from big tech companies were wrongheaded and reeked of double standards and domestic politics more than anything else. 
And if there are some corrections coming, at least from my perspective, even if they're belated, that's a good thing. And yet you're seeing a lot of people, journalists especially, very angry that there'll be less censorship of someone who was duly elected president of the United States. I just I find that unendingly weird. Well, particularly since there were so many people across the world who were on the left who were appalled by what Meta and Facebook and other social media companies did to the sitting president of the United States. I'm always thinking about how Angela Merkel, the chancellor of Germany at the time, was just going crazy on Facebook for deplatforming the sitting president. She recognized this as a threat to self-government and, and democracy. And yet a lot of people on the left in the United States were cheering it on. So it's good that it's finally ending, but there is it's just unconscionable and evil what Facebook and other social media companies have done to harm not just you know, it's not we, we have laws protecting free expression, which are really important. But the thing that makes America great is that we have a culture of encouraging debate and mm-hmm. different ideas and debate and, and, and discussion of these things. And that's what Meta has done so much to hamper. And so um, they're really they have a lot to, to to make up for what they've done to this country. Yeah, I mean, not just barring him from posting under his own name publicly on some of these platforms, Facebook, of course, the whole Twitter flap, but also the active measures that they took to bury a legitimate news story that was unhelpful to his campaign, basically on the say-so of his campaign, backed up by this collection of former intelligence officers and their alleged expertise about Russian disinformation. That's another story that is just something I'm not going to be quick to get over similar to the Kavanaugh thing, because it was so egregious. And they just try to gaslight us into forgetting about it, or like it really wasn't so bad, or it didn't really happen, or it didn't really matter. Uh, It's nonsense. And sometimes, even though it feels like we're going backwards and looking backwards, you have to fight these fights. If they are active fights with new things happening on the other side, disengaging, I think, is a mistake, which is why I wanted to ask you about both of these topics Uh, Really, all three of these topics here today. Molly Hemingway, editor-in-chief of The Federalist, a Fox News contributor. You can buy both of her best-selling books, Justice on Trial and Rigged. Molly, appreciate it. We'll talk again soon. Take care. The Guy Benson Show Happy Hour resumes after this break. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Earlier today on The Guy Benson Show, we welcomed back Governor Brian Kemp, Republican of Georgia, flying high after his big re-election. We got a lot in during this conversation. Here's part of it. I did see, and we mentioned it actually earlier in the week on this program, a new poll out in your state, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, has your approval rating bouncing to an all-time high, north of 60%. You're plus 30 above water following your big re-election victory uh, late last year. What do you think's happening there where you are now at the highest watermark so far of your term in office as governor? Well, I've been telling people that's just Atlanta paper setting me up and come after me. <laughs> but I'm, <laughs> not too, I'm not too worried about, uh, about polling. Listen, I've been doing what I told people I would do. I did that, as we talked about many times during the campaign, after I got elected in 2018, and, you know, I ran on issues this year going into the 2022 election and got reelected handily, thank goodness. And, you know, I've been talking about my state of the state, my inaugural address of doing the things that I campaigned on. And I think that 
resonates with Georgians, and I think they're realizing a lot of things that were said during the campaign, just like as you and I have discussed many times, Guy, our, our voting bill. You know, Georgians realized that Stacey Abrams and other people were and I was telling them the truth, and they realized that, you know, we got an issue with street gangs and violence in our communities, and I've been doing something about it, and I think that's just resonating with them. Yeah, I, I think you're right and wise to say that polls can come and go in terms of approval ratings, but you just referenced a different poll, this one from the University of Georgia, that might be more meaningful. We also talked about this earlier in the week because we've been covering a lot of the lies told about the voting reform bill that you signed into law. There was so much noise out there from Stacey Abrams to Democrats in Georgia to the news media to the president of the United States, who is maybe worst of all, Jim Crow 2.0, worse than Jim Crow, voter suppression, racism. Well, the University of Georgia asked Georgia voters about their experiences going to the polls this past November. 98.9% of Georgia voters said they did not have a problem voting. There was no difference between black people and white people on that question. 72% rated their experience in voting in the last election as excellent. Again, no racial gap whatsoever. And 0% of black voters, the people supposedly being suppressed, 0% of them rated their experience voting in 2022 as poor. That's the University of Georgia poll. What an absolute repudiation to a lot of smears that were told over and over again, Governor. Well, as you know, guy, we were really on the front lines. Really, one of the first instances where, you know, we had to push back against the woke cancel culture and big corporate CEOs, obviously Major League Baseball, and everybody else that fell for the taglines and the pressures from people like Stacey Abrams and President Biden and a lot of big wigs that most of them didn't even live in Georgia. They were criticizing our voting bill, and they didn't even know what was in it. But you know, we never wavered. We stood by our guns and told the truth and we did that for a very long time and we ran the race and won and you know during that race everybody had an easy time voting no matter who they were voting for and the numbers speak it i mean we were seeing record turnout and early voting not only in the primary but also in the general election and then the university poll just really codifies that if you will uh and solidifies what jordan's already know it's easy to vote and hard to cheat it's a shame that you had people like Joe Biden saying it was Jim Crow 2.0 and, you know, all these other crazy things. But we proved to be right, and I think that's one reason, you know, not only mine, but the Republican leaders in our state, our approval ratings are good right now because we've been honest with people and we're doing what we said we'd do. There was an obviously politicized investigation launched by the Justice Department, the Biden Justice Department, into this exact issue, the supposed voter suppression which doesn't exist. I mean, it's a complete fabrication. It has been debunked in every conceivable way. I think it is outrageous that it was ever launched in the first place. Every day that it continues is a waste of time, resources, and taxpayer money. Is there any indication that that might go away? They might finally drop this and just take the L? That's part one. Part two, have you gotten apologies from anyone who participated in the lying and the smears now that they have been obviously proven totally wrong. Yeah, well, I don't think that crowd's going to be apologizing, and that's fine with me. It doesn't matter as long as our citizens know. But what is shameful, guys, just like you just said, is the taxpayers of our state are continuing to have to pay for these ridiculous lawsuits. You know, we've paid over $6 million in the fair fight lawsuit that we won 
is way back from 2018 that Stacey Abrams and her group fought that a federal judge threw out on every single count. And now you got the Biden Justice Department suing us over a voting bill where we just have almost 100% voting satisfaction uh, in the 2022 election. So they should withdraw the lawsuit. They should drop it. They should save our taxpayers and federal taxpayers money. And, I, you know, hopefully they'll do that. I'm sure they're probably waiting for a good time to do it when maybe no one will notice and they can try to save face. But if they don't, we're going to fight it. We'll fight it hard just like we've been doing because the truth's on our side. Yeah, maybe they can just drop it quietly on a Friday night, one of those Friday news dumps. Uh, you know, the sooner the better. Governor, I do want to ask you about this. I saw that you were in Davos, Switzerland at that World Economic Forum, uh, typically kind of an elitist event, a lot of people from around the world in Europe. There were a lot of Democrats who participated, not as many Republicans, at least from what I saw. But you were there, and uh, you maybe uh, looked and sounded a little different than some of the other people who were participating. You certainly think differently than many of them. What message do you deliver to that type of crowd? I mean, I saw some of your remarks. It seemed like you were making the case for your conservative policies. I mean, how was that received in Davos? Well, I'll tell you, when you wear cowboy boots and talk like (laughs) I do, I certainly stood out in Davos with that Uh crowd. But listen, Guy, it was great. It was a great opportunity for me to sell our state to the world, especially from a business perspective and how – our conservative agenda and uh, free market policies is working in our state. We were doing it long before the, you know, so-called uh, Inflation Reduction Act passed. And I talked about that on the panel. I talked about securing the border and uh, a lot of other things that we're doing in Georgia. My problem was when I was on that stage with that crowd, there was five federal politicians, one other governor that's, uh, you know, probably 180 degrees different from me. So. Out of a 45-minute panel, I think I got to speak for a minute and 36 seconds. But I said a lot. (laughs) Uh, But we had a lot of other great meetings and places where I was able to just talk to people about what we're doing in Georgia, about the conservative playbook that we have is working. And I was pleasantly surprised. There's a lot of people there that we're doing business with in Georgia from all over the world, Uh, South Koreans, Germans, uh, you know, a lot of other uh, businesses, Japanese that we're doing business with, other U.S. companies that are either headquartered in Georgia or have big presences there. And so I got to do, you know, three or four months' worth of meetings in three or four days, which was great. Uh, But also I was surprised at how many other like-minded people were there. They're just not near as vocal as as I was. Uh, But that voice needs to be heard. You know, they need to have alternative voices there. And I, I caught a lot of grief from some of my own friends when I went out there and people on our side of the aisle. But we can't just talk to ourselves about conservative ideas and what makes our states work. Uh, we got we to gotta convince other people of that, and that's what I was doing in Davos. Now you're also touting your COVID policies, which were very controversial here at the time, and I'm sure many people in that audience are just like, I can't believe they did such irresponsible things. But I mean, the results are what they are, and you went to bat for that as well. Now, obviously people are noticing here at home how well your state is doing as well because they put out these lists, these rosters of where people are renting U-Hauls and taking them to. And I think I just saw the 2022 list where Georgia was in the top 10. Uh, there were seven or eight in terms of the top destinations in the country for people moving with U-Hauls. I think that's a very sort of fascinating metric to take a look at. Unsurprisingly, dead last place, California. I think Texas and Florida were close one and two. You guys right there in the top 10. 
what are you seeing in terms of in-migration, not in terms of international business, I know that that was a separate goal in Davos, just folks around the country picking up from wherever they're living and saying, you know what, we're heading to Georgia now? Well, if you look, guy, they are. They're coming to the south and the southeast, and it's because of competitive environments. That's one of the things I talked about in Davos, the reason a lot of these manufacturers are coming to our state, even if they're you know doing electric vehicles. My full interview with Brian Kemp, the governor of Georgia, available on our website, GuyBensonShow.com. Also on our free podcast, the whole show every day, start to finish, no charge to you, totally free, GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, it's the home stretch. There's a term called future cringe. What does that mean? We'll discuss and debate straight ahead. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on this Friday on the Guy Benson Show. Happy Friday. Almost to the weekend. One more segment together, and it's always a fun one. We remind you that our website is GuyBensonShow.com. We remind you that the podcast is free every day. So the New York Times has this style section piece called Future Cringe, accompanied by a cringing emoji, sort of the wincing emoji. Subheadline. One day we'll look back on this moment and wonder, what were we thinking? And this got us thinking about what might be sort of the basis for future cringe, where we look back at ourselves and say, oh, gosh. I think, for example, of some of my own fashion choices in high school. I had the very popular at the time, like early 2000s, hair slicked down in front and then spiked up. Right, so slicked down all the way across the top of my head and then spiked up in front with some uh, hair gel or hairspray. And quite frankly, no apologies. I think that kind of looks good. I think it's still a good look. My old high school yearbook photos, I think it's uh, not too shabby. But the sartorial choices, less appealing. Like cargo pants, cargo shorts. You know, rugby shirts... They were very much in fashion back then. I think I had a few from Old Navy or The Gap. I still think those are a pretty good look. Maybe cargo pants don't deserve to come back, cargo shorts. But I would say rugby shirts, yes. I'll advocate for that. So that would be just you know one example of future cringe. I wonder if there's stuff that I wear. Although I think a lot of my wardrobe, frankly, is timeless. Maybe certain jackets that I wear on TV, the thickness of ties tends to fluctuate through the decades. I don't know. I would imagine there's probably a good chance that I might go back in 20 or 30 years and listen to some of these home stretch segments and have a lot of cringe, but really secondhand cringe on behalf of you know who. In fact, let's talk to her. Christine, I feel like your future cringe is really current cringe every day. In fact, you tell us sometimes that you will listen to home stretch segments on Bonus Benson over the weekend, having just done it a few days earlier. You're like, you guys, I sound crazy. And we're like, sound? So I just wonder, is there really a clear line, distinction for you between future and present cringe? Um, I think you're right on some level. I think it's just the way sometimes maybe I explain things that are cringe. But, like, to be perfectly honest, um, you know, like my home decor, my aesthetic, my fashion choices, my makeup, 
I don't think are cringy at all. Uh, most choices that I make, you know, I just don't think I explain them properly. But no, I don't. I don't think I would probably look back at much uh, and cringe at all. All right, so you're kind of like uh, no regretsing this thing, where you have a misspelled no regrets tattoo on your arm, and you're just like that's true. And, and you're making the classic political case that you have a communications problem not a substance problem like you're awesome and your choices are great you're just not communicating them properly to the american people well yes and i i blame you for a lot of that i would say probably not yeah 90 percent of the problem is you so you basically um, are joe biden no regrets blame fox news you know you gotta live you, with no regret that's what yeah i'm definitely i want that should be my first tattoo remember we talked about it i should have a no regrets tattoo we should think about this. Right, but that's yeah, a whole definitely. different side story. Yeah, that would be, I think, yet another addition to the future cringe roster, the No Regrets tattoo. Dan, do you have a future cringe take? I don't know if I have a future cringe take, but I have, like, a not too far recent um, cringe thing. Like, social media selfies. I used to be kind of like a selfie poster on Instagram. So, like, looking back on that, it's like, Oh, what were you doing? And some of the hair, haircut styles and, and, and just clothes I was wearing, I just look back. So I like wonder if like in a few years I'm just going to think the same way about how I am now. Probably. <laughs> right? That's I, probably how this yeah. works. My hope is that culturally we will look back at some of the woke tales, craziest excesses, and be like, wow, that was very cringy. Like, okay, we had some moments in 2020 and – uh, there was some social upheaval, but we took things way too far. Yikes. I hope collectively we can have that realization sooner than later. I just worry it's just going to get worse and worse. I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe we finally kind of wake up or more of us become awake, not woke. How about that? Wyatt, is there a lot of cringing in your life? I feel like you're not a big cringe character. Um. Well, like you said, a lot of the stuff said on these home stretches are pretty cringe. But I, I agree with some of the woke stuff. I think looking back in this story, if you read Ben Smith, uh, editor-in-chief of Semaphore, he says, demonstrative social media politics, which I guess is when people are just so, you know, feel so compelled to post on their Instagram stories about their politics and the, the latest outrage and all this stuff. And I think that type of culture will be very cringe, just Pretty recently, but I think looking back from a few years, I think people will look at that and be like, why was I in that group think of posting this? So I think that is something that could be a future cringe trend. Yeah, just like the over-the-top performative virtue signaling, I think, could very well fall into that category. I hope so. To me, it's very cringe right now. Other people are taking a while to get there. But, like, no cringe looking back wide on, like, you know, the, the balloon animals, why, why the clown, why it's bakery, any of that stuff that's all just part of the rich tapestry that is Quiet Wyatt? Yeah, that's just all part of the story. Okay. Well, with that, Christine, do you, do you want, I feel like you're burning to get a last word here. Yeah, I would like to go back to why I blame you for the uh, communication issues. If you think okay. we don't have enough time, maybe we could just make that a whole thing on Monday. But, no, we, we've got um, plenty of time because, I mean, it's it's nonsense, so you should be able to get the lie out in about 25 seconds. 
Well, I think that when I try to explain, uh, example, psychics, when I try to explain no. why I think that oh. they're important and especially a part of my life, um, you kind of just like bag on me for it. So I don't, I'm trying constantly defending myself and I don't actually get to let the audience know and inform them about things that they might be interested about. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Well, look, I think that if you want some future cringe, maybe you can imagine just close your eyes and envision your future bank account and bank statements and you see how much money has been bled out of your accounts because you're paying it to someone who claims they can see the future that is some hardcore future cringe that could affect you know i don't know the ability of megan to go to the college of her choice and be able to afford it but you know you do you christine no regrets just like joe biden i get it there's no future cringe for cookie because the cringe is in the present true Real and present cringe. Maybe that could be the tattoo. Back here on Monday. Have a great weekend. It's the Guy Benson Show. Stay sane if possible. Stay safe. We'll talk to you then. Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table, the Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.